You have just crossed over the train tracks from the virtual Alexandria into the virtual Hermopolis. It's a little bit more of a rough neighborhood over here, but the rent is cheaper, so we got to do what we got to do. In 10 years, this is going to be the hot spot. This is The Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number four. The topic today is Simon Magus, and it is our pleasure to have our very first guest on the podcast, Mr. Alex Rivera. He's an author of various short stories, novels, and the owner of the website, theaoni.com, and the YouTube podcast, The Magus Aeon, which spans different topics um, regarding comparative mythology, the Bible, the Holy Grail, esoterica, Gnostic texts, and orthodoxy. He's a self-trained scholar, gathering primary sources and piecing it all together on his own or with the help of friends. He currently resides in Orlando, Florida, and is also working on his next book, The Sun Lady Unveiled, Revelation 12 Decoded. He's also got an online premium school he's working on for those serious about cultivating the Gnosis. So please check out his website. It is jam-packed full of information. And here is the episode. We hope you enjoy it. Simon the Magician. Have you ever heard of him? Well, this obscure historical person may have had a profound impact on what you think is biblical Christianity. Simon came from the Middle East, but his religious cult would spread over a wide area, creating a conspiracy that perverted the teachings of Jesus. His megalomania drove him to claim that he was God. His followers met in secret conclaves, practicing strange rituals for centuries after his death. You know, sometimes it is difficult to separate historical fact from fable. In this case, the truth is stranger than fiction. Today, we're going to explore how an ancient cult influenced modern Christianity, maybe even your Christianity. Join us in exploring the strange tale of Simon the Magician. The Samaritans were outcasts from Jewish society. They mingled biblical teachings with paganism to create a unique sort of paganized Judaism. Simon had a large following among the Samaritans because he performed quote-unquote miracles through demonic power. The biblical account doesn't say that Simon wanted to give up his pagan religion or even change his way of life. What he wanted was power. What are we to learn from a pagan who tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit? Simon wanted to be like God. He wanted to satisfy that spiritual hunger that we all experience. He wanted to be respected as a spiritual leader. But he wanted all this without a willingness to love God or submit to God. His life, his teachings, his death. Just a bizarre mixture of insanity and myth. Simon's greatest heresies were infecting Christianity hundreds of years after he is mentioned in the book of Acts. We're infecting Christianity. We're infecting Christianity. We're infecting Christianity. 
Simon the Magician, Simon the Magician, Simon the Magician, Simon the Magician. Gnostics true religion is found in the power of secret knowledge. Secret knowledge, secret knowledge, secret knowledge. Okay, we are here with our first guest of our podcast, Mr. Alex Rivera. How you doing, Alex? I'm doing awesome. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked me on the show. Uh, it's Simon is a very fascinating character, so I'm more than happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's a great topic. And as always, Janice is here as well. Janice, how's it going? Very well. Great. So I thought, Alex, I, I gave an intro before we started, but... Um, you're working on a new book. Do you want to do you want to talk about that really quick before we get started? Oh yeah, I'll just do a quick plug into it. So the book is called "The Sun Lady Unveiled: Revelation Twelve Decoded." Now that uh, s- subtitle might change, but for now, this the Revelation Twelve Decoded. But uh, I do get into uh, well, primarily it's based on a, a specific chapter, chapter twelve of the Book of Revelation. But somehow that became something else when I actually started like doing more research into uh, different characters in that chapter. Like we have, you know, the woman clothed with the sun, you have the dragon, you have the man child, but these are all like uh, deep symbols or archetypes that keep repeating in other uh, works. Uh, like, for example, you see this, the same characters appear in a, other revela- revelatory texts like, you know, the Apocrypha of John or the Pista Sophia. Uh, and, and it also correlates with um, a ton of other uh, parallels. And even you get into the Kabbalah, get into Simon Magus as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, the subject is just really big, but uh, primarily I'm just trying to correlate all the different uh, aspects of that book of revelation see how it sort of unfolds to all these other traditions and it's just kind of interesting how i, I just started even doing the <laughs> researching this topic but uh we'll get to that later though <laughs> that's just like kind cool. of the, the short yeah. sn- snapshot of it <laughs> sure and so we're, this is march 2018 now do you have an estimated release date uh i, w- I would say maybe around uh, probably the summertime because uh, cool. I'm like halfway done with the last chapter, but um, the last chapter is uh, pretty much just what I think about uh, as far as what the beast represents and the apocalypse. And it's really more, uh, it's meaning, meaningful on a number of different levels. You know how the Valentinians use scripture, there's three different levels of meaning. So you see right. that even the book of revelation too. Now I wouldn't say the book of revelation is a, uh, 
as a Gnostic text at all, <laughs> but uh, it does have many uh, correlations with Gnosticism and uh, other religions. Like even I get into Roman mythology quite a bit. I mean, and I I, I suspect a lot of these figures like uh, Melchizedek or Michael or Mithras they actually come from uh, Romulus, but uh, that that's just kind of like my working theory. <laughs> it's more they're all kind of based on Roman. And Greek mythology, especially uh, Judaism, especially if you, like you compare like uh, Genesis to uh, Hesiod, for example, there's a ton of correlations there. It's like it kind of blows your mind if once you actually do the research there. But yeah, right. this yeah, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> Very cool, Alex. I look forward to checking that out when you when you complete it. Um, I don't mean to kind of push this along, but we've got a lot to cover. And limited time, so this has been quite a task to get us all together. <laughs> it's, yes, it's taken but, uh, a few we, few weeks. Yes, yes but you know it, it worked out in the end. So yes, I'm glad we're we're all together and sharing the gnosis. Right. Okay. So as as we mentioned, this is Simon Magus. So I'm thinking we're just going to do maybe like a roundtable discussion. Uh, I'm going to do some table setting, as they say in the industry. Uh, even though I'm not in the industry, I'm going to do that now and kind of set the context for Simon, present a canvas that we can kind of explore. Um, so I wanted to look at the Samaritans themselves first, and, and I think that's a valuable, valuable thing to look at if you're going to look at and start delving into Simon the man. Um, the Samaritans, they were Jews, Jews in the north. So they were the northern Jews, and the southern Jews were the Jews that lived around um, Jerusalem. So way back in around 720 BCE, the Assyrians invaded the area. They were the, one of the major superpowers. They devastated the Sumerian, the, the northern Jewish tribes there. Um, they took tens of thousands captive, and but they did leave a lot in place. So they... They took over this area, and so they wanted the tax revenue to continue, you know, to su help support their their empire. So they they left some people in place, and they also repopulated Samaria with people from Mesopotamia. And so these people that came over from Mesopotamia weren't. Uh, I don't think they signed up for it necessarily out of the goodness of their hearts. I think these were tribes, from what I've read, and and people in in the Assyrian Empire who were problematic, who uh, they were having difficulties with. So as kind of a punishment, they moved these people into uh, the Samaritan lands. And so you have a mix of uh, Eastern ideas, Eastern philosophies, Eastern peoples with the, the Northern Jews of the area. And... This didn't go over well with the Southern Jews. This begins the rift. Um, the Samaritans started intermarrying, interbreeding with these other people, and that was that was the end of it as far as the Southern Jews were concerned. They were essentially considered Gentiles at this point, and the grudge continues to the present day. But so so that's the Assyrian Samaritan. Um, story. A few hundred years later, the Babylonians arrive onto the scene and they decimate the southern tribes. And this is right after 
uh, Josiah makes some really serious reforms to the way things are being run in the temples. So um, it didn't go over very well, and it was a rocky transition. And maybe if one of you guys wants to jump in later about the differences, but Josiah really shook things up. The Babylons came. They took a bunch of aristocrats and, and different people into Babylon. This is their exile in Babylon. But there were also people that were left behind. Years go by. The people that were left behind, they were they were still practicing more or less the first temple traditions, the, the original traditions. Meanwhile, the people in exile in Babylon were, were uh, practicing this new Josiah uh, version of, of Judaism. Eventually, they come back maybe a generation or two later. Samaritans, are, they're not getting along still. I think the Samaritans asked if maybe they could help build a new temple because their temple was destroyed when the, Babylons, the Babylonians came through. They were denied. Um, the rift grew even bigger. And stop me if I'm if I'm talking too much. I'm I'm getting to the end of of this uh, table setting section here. So yeah, the Jews were back, and they were now performing this new reformed uh, Judaism. Second Temple was built. Um, eventually, the Samaritan Temple was destroyed, so they had their own temple. But before that happened, something worthy, I think of note is there was a ruler of the area, I don't know how to pronounce it, Seleucid Empire. His name was Antiochus IV. He basically, he he controlled Samaria at this time, and he wanted to Hellenize his entire kingdom um, so that everything was standardized. And according to Maccabees, he proclaimed himself the incarnation of the Greek god Zeus. And so this is where the temple in Samaria was dedicated to Zeus. And I think that's pretty significant considering Simon would do something similar a few hundred years later. So that's my table setting on the Samaritans and the relationship with the southern tribes and this kind of rockiness that's, that's been brewing for centuries. You guys want to jump in on anything? Oh yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Second Temple uh, Reformation because uh, that's actually exactly what I'm uh, talking about in my uh, new book. Cool. Uh, yeah. So there's a scholar by the name of Margaret Barker. Uh, I think she's a Methodist, but um, she definitely focuses on wrestles with Nazism, unlike other uh, Christian scholars. Uh, she uh, she thinks that uh, Gnosticism and, or at least the earliest forms of Christianity or strains of Christianity came or actually uh, and are more like an evolution from uh, First Temple Judaism. And, you know, in First Temple Judaism, they uh, worship the figure of uh, Ashtara, right, for wisdom. Now, in Second Temple Judaism, that changed quite a bit. Uh, it was more focused on the law of Moses uh, and Moses himself. So uh, the Pharisees uh, that you see in uh, the Gospel of John, for example, they're a part of the Second Temple uh, tradition. And, uh, you know, Jesus constantly argues with them <laughs> over, 
you know, who, who's like, who's the, who's the most right. Right. Uh, and over, you know, over these, uh, the tradition of uh, Jesus's uh, bloodline, which comes from David, right. According to the gospels and, you know, the, the house David was, David was very much, you know, entrenched in uh, the worshiping of wisdom. So, I mean, you also see this uh, hinted at in the book of Revelation where Jesus is like, you know, he's considered the uh, the root of David, right? Or the light bearer of Lucifer. So, and of course, Lucifer is very much a uh, feminine deity. <laughs> he it goes to Venus. So that's kind of a, like a quick snapshot. But uh, what do you think, Dominic? Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of scholars point towards Jesus as being aligned with the Melchizedek paradigm. Does that sound right to you, Janice? It does. Um, There's also a connection in that regard, too, uh, because of Melchizedek's uh, relationship to the uh, earlier Canaanite worship, which was done on a mountain. Uh, Abraham was a Canaanite. The Canaanites, um, you know, their chief deity was El. They worshipped El on a mountain. And the form of Samaritan worship was done on a mountain as well. So, you know, there's there's definitely um, a continuity between Canaanite uh, religious observances and the Samaritan religious observances. And I think that the uh, details that you illustrated in your introduction, Dominic, sort of point toward that also. Right. Yeah. I uh, I can't think of the name of the mountain off the top of my head. I know it starts with a G. I think it's Gerizim or something like that. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that was their that was their holy site, and it, it's very interesting. And I, I just want to emphasize. I don't know if I emphasized it enough, but there is a lot of Hellenization in this area. I think more than people realize. I mean, there were there were Greek settlements all over this area and a lot of people were, were speaking Greek. And, and so I just want to add that in, make sure we, we had that into the context. Um, Cause I think it's important. So, so I think that's, you know, lays the foundation for the kind of the, at least a little bit, there's definitely more context that could be added. I mean, this is a very rich time. The time that Simon was around the, the cultures and the the spirituality is is really heavy at this point, and so there's a lot of context that that we're not getting, and we may not even know about. But I think the context that we set up is is decent for now um, to move forward with. Well, you know what's interesting, and in that uh, I actually talked about this in one of my articles, is that uh, the, the Emperor Hadrian actually erected a uh, a temple to Zeus or Jupiter on Mount Gerizim. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, and what's funny about that, which I'm sure we'll get to soon, is that uh, Simon was also uh, worshipped in the form of uh, Zeus. <laughs> so right. Simon, so Simon was syncretized as Zeus, and uh, Helen was actually syncretized with uh, Minerva. And uh, the church fathers kind of get into this as well. So there's a lot of uh, uh, Greek uh, thought that goes into Simon's myths. Uh, definitely. And Janice, do you think this is Simon when, when we're, we're getting into it now, uh, where Simon is, is saying that he is Zeus? Do you think he's playing to the crowd as he knows who's, who's listening? Because I know he traveled to Rome. Um, 
did he use Zeus as kind of a bridge into these into these other cultures so that there can be some some common ground? Well, number one, I think we have to be wary of the accounts of the church fathers because they're notorious liars, slanderers, <laughs> and hypocrites. However, um, it is also possible that Simon did use this language. And if he did, I don't know if it was so much playing to the crowd as the fact that he possessed an exalted understanding. So for him, his identification with Zeus was in the classic sense of identification of any high mystic um, of old, East or West. I mean, it's common among yogis, among um, sadhus, among magi, among, you know, mystics in the East and West of the world to uh, identify with the deity that they, that they venerate. Um, you know, it's a classic element and a step in the self-realization process. So I think that if he was, if he was identifying as Zeus, which we have to call in the question again, right? because it was also possible that it was just typical church father slander to make Simon guilty of, to make Simon seem guilty of hubris. If we put that aside, though, I think it's certainly possible uh, that Simon being initiated into the mysteries uh, identified with Zeus in a mystical way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's safe to say that Simon was probably Hellenized, at least to a certain degree. Um, I thought I, I read somewhere that he spoke Greek. He certainly would have come across it. Um, he it is said that he was schooled in Alexandria. That's part of his, his, uh, of the legend. Um, so he certainly would have been familiar with, with the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Well, you know, it's, uh, when you look at the gospel of John, uh, there's that, you know, the, the Samaritan woman comes up to Jesus and, uh, she says to him that, you know, sir, I perceive that you have a, pro a prophet, but our father's, worshipped on uh, Mount Gerizim, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But, you know, Jesus pretty much says uh, to her that, well, you know, the hour is coming that you will, you will actually worship the Father, neither on uh, Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, right? Because the Father is beyond the material world. So, so that's, you know, that's another very Gnostic sounding statement of Jesus right there. Well, it's also been it's also been supposed that the Samaritan woman was actually Helen. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert Price actually gets gets into that. Uh, she thinks that you know the the Samaritan woman is really Helena, and G and Jesus is actually just a watered down uh, form of uh, Simon. <laughs> well, I think see that see okay okay. You have me halfway, but see we really have to be one thing that needs we need to set ourselves about apart with is a more rigorous perspective because there's a crazy, like there's a craze flying, wanting to say Simon is actually Paul. Simon is actually Jesus. Simon is actually mm -hmm. this, you know, it just gets tiresome. It starts to sound like conspiracy theorizing. So let's put right. that part aside. But on the other hand, we should consider that Simon and Jesus and by implication, Helen were, they all knew each other. They were all part of the same matrix of people. Mm-hmm. And if we go back, you know, into the accounts that state, which state that um, Simon 
and Jesus were pupils of John the Baptist, this begins to make sense. If we consider that that may be true, then the fact that Helen would be visiting Jesus is not really an unusual thing. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to get into this because we look at uh, some of these these uh, huge figures of the day, Jesus, Dositheus, Simon, and the common denominator is John the Baptist. Absolutely. It's hard to say. I mean, it, it seems as though John was a teacher of of all of these people and can i pause you for a minute there i would say that i would say that john actually you could go even further and in in a sense of the essenes you could say that john was modeling himself or was perhaps the prophesied teacher of righteousness right of the Essenes. I mean, because, you know, you're, call, you're saying he's a teacher. Well, the, the teacher's prophecy to teacher, the Essenes prophecy to teacher of righteousness. Right, right. And I've seen that, I've seen it mentioned where he was, maybe he was the teacher of righteousness. Maybe it was Jesus. Maybe it was Paul. And, in, you know, again, we could, we could start moving the pieces around the board. But yeah, that it would make sense. John is also associated with the Essenes, it seems, in some ways. Um, they were in the same neighborhood, that's for sure. Um, the the uh, settlement at Qumran was very close to where John was doing his baptizing, that's for sure. Well, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the church fathers, they uh, originally, well, even like, in, you see this in the Gospels too, like uh, the Pharisees really thought that John was really a heretic, you know? And uh, but only later, uh, John was uh, co-opted, kind of like Paul was, <laughs> you know, for the for the uh, apostolic church. So because there were more Judaizing than they were uh, Gnostic, obviously. But it's definitely those connections where I mean, they you do see watered down versions of these figures uh, later on in the uh, apostolic church, especially like in the Book of Acts, for example, is a really big example of that. Well, you know, that brings up two points that are really interesting. Uh, One thing I want to mention before I forget about it is the fact that, you know, John is seen as exactly that by the Mandaeans to this day, as being the actual prophecy teacher of righteousness of Messiah. Um, That aside, um, it's also interesting considering that if you look in in the canonical Bible, which we know was composed late in the game and is not the sole authority on things, but, it, it, but that aside, um, if you look at the canonical Bible, we see representation of Sadducees. We see representation of Pharisees. And both criticized Jesus and the apostles. But and like as you were saying, John, they considered John a heretic. Now, there were three Jewish groups at the time, not two. And the third, I mean, main, there were also smaller, but... The, the the third group that was not is not represented in the gospels at all is the Essenes. So if you notice in the canonical Bible in the in the in the New Testament, we see the Sadducees represented, we see the Pharisees represented, and we see them accusing and being rather aggressive and confrontational with Jesus. Um what we don't see represented is the Essenes. Now, if the Sadducees and Pharisees felt that John and, of course, Jesus were heretical or were heretics, it would make sense 
if John and Jesus were considered to be Essenes or related to the Essenes. John's yeah. behavior is reflective of what we know of the lifestyle of the Essenes, actually, as well. Yeah, I was just going to interject that an Essene, or it seems like there were a lot of uh, minor sects as well, which you alluded to earlier. But even beyond kind of the recognized lesser sects, it seems like there were kind of a handful of other little mini uh, sects or cults that were all kind of interrelated with the Essenes and the Baptist movement as well. I would suspect that John and Jesus were part of maybe one of these branch off, you know, offshoot sects from the Essenes perhaps. Well, we know that Mani, his father, I believe was an Elkasite. And um, yes. I knew the Elkasite, I know that the Elkasites did have a sense of identification with the Essenes or a sense of continuity with them. And they were a Baptist tradition. And, you know, I think that's, that's significant because uh, we know that the, the so-called battle between Paul, Paul and Peter, or rather Simon and Peter, was originally a, um, an account of a battle between Paul and Peter, which was reflective of a, a disagreement between the two sects of the Ebionites and the Elkasites. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you read uh, the Clementine homilies, which is a very uh, revealing text, uh, that, uh, you know, John was the founder of this Baptist cult, and uh, Simon and uh, Dositheos were, of course, uh, rival students of John, perhaps even his sons, maybe. Uh, but, you know, if you read uh, him, he also, uh, or Clement, Clement of Rome, he actually says that uh, Helen was also uh, one of the uh, disciples of John. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I seem to remember that John did not have a wife. He was part of uh, the side of things that, that did not, I believe it was the Essenes that did not, um, am I on the wrong trail here? I don't think John was married, basically. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem that he was. It doesn't seem that he was, but... Another thing that you can look at is the fact that, so we look at the post-John execution scenario, right? So unfortunately, we have some conflicting accounts of who Decithius was in terms of where he fit in the sequence. Was Decithius actually the, the leader of the sect following John's demise because both Jesus and Simon were gone in other places? There's one account that definitely states that that was the fact and that when Simon returned, there was actually a conflict because Simon was expected to be the inheritor of the sect. Um, but then there's other accounts which place Decithius um, as a pupil of John, or, or, or as a teacher, I'm sorry, as a teacher of Simon. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's unclear. Another thing that I think is clear is if we look at the post- execution scenario after John was executed, we see that Jesus and Simon did very similar things. They both ended up traveling around the region with a, with a very, with a close female companion who was their most intimate confidant and who worked miracles alongside them. Since I, yeah. I just want to, since we're talking about Helen now, 
I just want to to ask this question. It was something I, I had been thinking about. I didn't quite understand the timeline of Helen. So in the Clementine homilies, I believe it says that Helen was already a part of John's group and she was known as Luna. And she, she was kind of, they were like the, the lunar uh, side of things. And later, and, and some other sources, I, I'm probably the, the church fathers, Simon met Helen in, in like a brothel in what's today uh, Beirut. So, hey, and I think we need to just completely throw that concept away. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's similar to the, the misunderstanding instituted by, I believe, I don't know, was it Jerome that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? I mean, you know, it's understood now, unfortunately, in popular understanding, it's not grass, but no scholar considers that accurate, you know, anymore. We know that Mary Magdalene was, in fact, not a prostitute. In the same way, it's a sort of disparaging, negative uh, attitude toward women in positions of spiritual leadership that we see again in the church fathers. Um, they, they were very threatened by that. And I think part of that is, um, you know, a reaction to the Sophianic movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact, the, the concept of, um, yeah, the concept of Helen being going by the magical name or mystical name Luna makes a lot of sense. If you, when you get into the actual, ideas of Simon and how he saw man and woman as being interconnected reflexes of a, of a unity. Um, and we could go into that, you know, maybe later, but the thing is here, we should also remember that Clement of Alexandria was not anti-Gnosticism or Gnosis. He considered himself a Gnostic. If you read his writings, he identifies as a Gnostic, but Clement felt that Gnostics should be within the church and not outside the church. He was an ecclesiastical Gnostic. And I personally believe that this is because Clement wanted to preserve the inner tradition of Gnosticism. I mean, he felt very much that that the Gnosis should be on the higher levels of the church. Mm-hmm. So Clement was, Clement was familiar with a lot of things that many of the early church fathers were not familiar with, which is why we have the fragment that was found by Morton Smith of the called the Secret Gospel of Mark, which was uh, a fragment of the Gospel of Mark, which involves Jesus initiating a young man in the mysteries. Uh, and Clement makes it clear that this information was not meant for general consumption, but was initiatic. So we have to understand that a Clement did know things and was aware was privity information that others were not. B he was also um, not opposed to Gnosticism, but opposed to Gnosticism outside of the church um, because he felt, I think, it was destructive. Uh, and and C, uh, we also have to understand that if Clement considered himself initiated, he may have said things like Jesus would say in a mystery. He may have clothed what he said in symbolic forms, or he may have skewed the truth a little bit while trying to, at the same time, record it for posterity uh, and, and it, you know, and it would be, it would be accessible to those who understood how to interpret it accurately. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, very cool. And Alex, I want, you, you seem very familiar with the Clementine homilies. Um, you've done a lot of writing and, and, uh, you speak about them quite a bit. Um, 
in a minute, would you mind kind of running us through what, what they say about this story, which is an awesome story. It would make an awesome movie, honestly. Um, but would you mind doing that uh, in a minute? Before that, though, I would like to... I, I, I think it's important that we really emphasize this this matrix, like you said, Janice, of individuals and the fact that Dositheus, Simon... John and Jesus were all peers and they were a part of something that was separate from mainstream Judaism. And, and I think, um, I mean, the relationship between John and Jesus, it seems as though maybe Jesus and John were cousins. Um, in, in the infancy got one of the infancy gospels, it talks about, uh, John's mother being a relative of, of Jesus's mother. Um, although in the Mandaean texts, I think they, they're so anti-Jesus, they say that John has been practicing baptism for 42 years before Jesus even came onto the scene. Which, So that chronology doesn't make sense. But Janice or, and or Alex, do you guys have any insights or, or thoughts on, more thoughts on, on kind of this, this group of characters we're talking about and how they're connected and related? Well, yeah. I mean, if you read Clementine, so they talk about how uh, the Baptist cult of John was consisted of 30 chief men that fulfills the month. <laughs> and uh, Helen is like, represents moon, obviously. But uh, going back to what uh, Janice said, uh, I suspect that uh, Helen is actually John's wife. And, uh, and possibly, maybe not Simon's mother necessarily, but I think uh, maybe John uh, married her. I know it's kind of weird. There's a weird kind of incest vibe going on here, but uh, I don't know why I suspect that, but uh, I don't know. It <laughs> seems like that's, that, that might be what's happening here uh, because it just seems like John and Simon, Simon's really his son. They're like really, he acts like his son quite a bit. And of course, you know, uh, Simon was initiated, oh, was uh, learning, you know, the magical mysteries in, in ancient Egypt. Well, not ancient Egypt, but around that time. And and he and then you also see Jesus also goes to Egypt as well in the Gospels. Funny enough, right? Um, well, you know, he's an infant when he goes to uh, Egypt. But I mean, when you think about the whole idea how Jesus was, there's you know, there's miss, all this missing time in Jesus's life, and and but. The, but you can feel that easily fill that gap when he's actually being trained in Egypt, and I think uh, Simon was also there as well at the same time. Janice, your thoughts? Well, it's an excellent point because both both Simon, so both Simon and Jesus left for further instruction or further training. That's the key here, and they left around the same time, which <clears throat> suggests that they were potentially at the same point in their development within the sect they were in. You know, if Jesus and Simon both left around the same time to go to other places for initiation, it meant they were, they were at the next phase of their spiritual development. Um, I think it, so we can get Do you guys think the timelines match up? I think that they should match up. I think that they've been deliberately skewed in some places. Got it. But I do believe that the truth is they match up very well. I think that I think that it's so Simon was clearly in Alexandria, which of course we know at the time was was 
you know, where a lot of the where the where there was a continuance of the Egyptian mysteries in a form that took on the cultural patterns of you know a synthesis between uh, Greco-Roman mysteries and Egyptian initiation and theology. So Simon would have been exposed to all of that, and he would have been a prime candidate for initiation. This is reflected in his teachings, which are actually represent, which are actually representative of other things we see coming out of Alexandria um, at, at different points in this period, such as the Hermetica, such as uh, Philo of Alexandria. You know, there there were there there were many cults in Alexandria at the time, and in addition to that, there were also Zoroastrians and Buddhists in Alexandria. Um, not touching the Buddhist thing right now, but the fact that there were Zoroastrians, Mithraists in Alexandria, which are two, you know, Mithraists and Zoroastrians were two different groups, but they were related. Um, it's possible that Simon was initiated into the mysteries of Mithras or was initiated in some capacity into the Zoroastrian mysteries, which would account for him being called a Magus. You know, it's possible that he was called that because of his initiation into other mysteries and the word magus was used in the Greek sense. But on the other hand, given his actual ideas, it's suggestive that Simon had some contact with Zoroastrianism in the same way that it's pretty clear if you look honestly at what Jesus teaches and uh, the contacts he had that Jesus was very aware of Egyptian theology. And this is where I was kind of going earlier. Um, I think saying that all these people were connected, I, I think this points pretty clearly to the fact, and we know, I mean, without a doubt, Simon was, was un, had Gnostic tendencies or, or, you know, as they say, the father of all heresies. But I think it's safe to say that everyone involved in this group were Gnostics. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's definitely a, a really good possibility. I mean, uh, if you read, like, the arguments or debates between Simon and Peter and the Clementine homilies, it just, to me, it really seems like he's very much high up in support of mystery school in Egypt, you know? Um, I mean, if you read uh, the Babylonian Talmud, it says that Jesus was a, uh, also a magician and a sorcerer who studied magic in Egypt. And just like Simon <laughs> said to done, so, you know. And this, I, and this is a pejorative. I mean, I think you mentioned this in your blog, that being called a, a magus wasn't really a, a positive thing. Right, yeah, you see that in, uh, well, in, in the Platonic schools, I think they spurned uh, the title of magus or magician. But, uh, but however, in Zoroastrianism, you know, the magus was uh, considered, to be one the same with the priest, right? And uh, because then they were really into fire worship, and of uh, of you know about who are Mazda, but it kind of seems like to me not to go off too tangent or off tangent. Like uh, I think like the Zoroastrians really uh, into Prometheus worship, but that's just me. Uh, because you know they were worshiping you know, the fire god or the fire, right. interesting, the fire of the, of Zeus or whatever. So Alex or. Uh, 
Yeah, I, Alex, I still want you to t- walk us through the Clementine homilies, if you don't mind. But I, I, <laughs> I want to go back to something really quickly. What uh, Janice was saying about Alexandria at the time, and it was pretty commonplace for spiritual tourism, so to speak, or it, it was pretty common for people to uh, people from Greek Greece, from Rome, to go to Egypt to learn the mysteries and something worth noting is that it wasn't free and you would pay for it. So this is something Simon is crucified for later that he dared to offer the apostles compensation for their knowledge and their teachings. But in Egypt, this was fairly commonplace for these Greeks and Romans traveling to Egypt to pay for, for their, the uh, service of the the Egyptian priests. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and the idea was that so most Egyptian priests worked on a yearly cycle where part of the year they worked in the temple and the other part of the year they traveled um, essentially as, as an itinerant magician performing exorcisms, blessing homes, uh, baptizing children, uh, performing invocations, burying the dead. Um, and doing works of divination and other things, perhaps love magic. Because in the Egyptian mindset, the magic was not seen as something uh, interfering with the will of some autocratic tyrant. It was seen as something that actually fulfilled the will of the gods and was bequeathed to humankind to help them cope with life. And so being a magician was not seen as an unfavorable occupation in Egyptian in the Egyptian culture. I think that's important because if we also consider that, then there's even more of an understanding why Simon or Jesus acted very much like an Egyptian magician, a traveling priest magician who, you know, went from town to town, from place to place, uh, you know, performing miracles, doing work, things like that. The sense of paying for things is connected to this because these priests would earn their keep that way. Um, this was their profession. Uh, I mean, today we pay if a priest if a if a priest comes and does a wedding, they're paid for it. It's not called a pay; it's called a honorarium or you know whatever. But most priests are paid for their work because it's understood that they need to eat too. And in terms of the initiatory rites, often there are multi, as as in today's initiatory religions there there are there are multiple people that went into these rites there was food resources there was time resources there was you know there was all these different aspects that went into it when what clothing people the oils the everything the investing of time people would have to take their jobs off people worked then just as now this money served to offset some of those exorbitant costs right I mean, it's really common sense. I think so. Um, very cool. So, Alex, would you mind walking us through um, kind of at least the framework of the Clementine homilies as it applies to Simon? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, well, it's written by uh, Clement of Rome. He's one of the uh, church fathers. Uh, according to the apostolic tradition, he actually uh, was – were apostol- apostolically succeeded from uh, St. Peter. But, uh, I mean, you do, you do have these two texts called uh, 
both the Clementine homilies and the Clementine recognitions. Uh, now, scholars think that they're just uh, pseudo-Clementines, or they weren't actually written by Clement, but uh, they're actually written somewhere maybe in the fourth century, but I suspect they actually come from the second century, because only because, I mean, a lot of the uh, viewpoints of Simon uh, really correspond to many Gnostic groups, uh, specifically uh, Marcion, surprisingly. I mean, uh, he has a very Marcionite take on uh, scripture. But uh, the start, I mean, as far as like the nitty gritty of all the different chapters and the Femzine homilies, I mean, it's a, it's a bit long, uh, but essentially in a, sort of a nutshell, I mean, you do have uh, Clement explaining the origins of Simon and where he comes from. And that's, you know, that's obviously where we got our information as far as the background information of John, Simon, Dositheos, et cetera. But what's interesting, uh, especially in the Clementines, is that you do see this uh, magical battle between uh, the Scythios and Simon. And uh, this, the, the reason why, why this actually happened is that, you know, John is uh, killed. Uh, now, whether or not he was beheaded, uh, that's what maybe that might, might be outside of the argument, but probably he might be have been beheaded but he was killed but you know when simon returned from uh, egypt he uh he discovered that dositheos actually claimed that Dositheus, you know, he he saw that dositheos took over the samaritan cult of john uh and he claimed that simon was dead and then they decided to go in <laughs> some sort of uh, interesting magical duel right now you also see this sort of reflected later on with Simon actually debating Peter. And they actually debate for like two to three days, if I remember correctly, about uh, how, how to interp correctly interpret scripture. And But these arguments, man, they just kind of blow my mind because it reveals a lot of what was happening between the apostolic church and a lot of these Gnostic groups. I mean, for example, I mean, you even see Peter claiming that there are false scriptures in the Bible. <laughs> Where did Peter get such an idea of the, the Bible was the inerrant word of God, right? Uh, and then, it, then you know, you see Simon uh, talking about uh, these very intrinsic polyistic interpretation or polytheistic, I should say, interpretation of scripture. You know, you know, like you look in Genesis, see, you know, how the uh, Council of Gods. Uh, you know, created Adam and their image, right? And then he tries to point that out, and Peter's like, kind of spurns the idea. You know, no, there's only one God. But you know, the way he, Peter argues, though, is just very much in like in a very circular fashion. He's always, you know, throwing circular arguments at Simon. So, but what's interesting about Simon too, though, is that I, I mean, I know I I theorized on my blog that you know maybe that Simon and Jesus might have been the same character. But, you know, when I was actually reading uh, the Clementine homilies a few months back, uh, you do see Simon actually, you know, dividing himself from Jesus, you know. I think it's very interesting. At one point, Simon actually accuses Jesus as being inconsistent when he's arguing with the, the apostles. And oh, yeah. to me, that says that, hey, he, he may know two Jesuses. You know, he may know the Jesus that they all 
studied together, he, the Jesus, the the theology of that Jesus, and now he's hearing this this different theology, which which is inconsistent. So again, that just that just reemphasizes to me that he knew Jesus prior. Oh yeah, I I, I think that's definitely the case. Well, you know, it's funny he said he actually call, uh, tells uh, Peter, you know, this is even your Jesus says this, you know, Matthew. Like he's like he's emphasizing your Jesus, you know. So the Apostolic Church had their own version of Jesus, while the Gnostics had their version of Jesus. Right. You know. So and then the Mandeans, obviously, you know, they hated Jesus. They had their own version of Jesus. You know, Marcion and his church had his version of Jesus. So I mean, just like so many different versions of Jesus, it's like uh, that. That's why you know we have to take you know seven ecumenical councils to figure this out <laughs> this jesus issue out you know <laughs> yeah, but i think that we can see the reason we see these similarities between simon and jesus i think it's i it's understandable that somebody might come to the initial conclusion that perhaps they were the same person but i find it far more plausible instead to suggest that they based on what we have that they knew each other and knew each other very well and if Jesus and Simon both bilocated, it was, it it would make sense given, given the fact that they were part of the same uh, group of initiates. If Jesus and Simon both traveled with a female initiate, a priestess, well, that would make sense also. If they both came, it's kind of like two people from the same family having similar traits. If they were both essentially raised or taught in a certain way. And then if they both went to similar places for later initiation, then it makes perfect sense as to why there are all these similarities. It also makes sense that Simon would speak in almost quasi-familiar familiar terms about Jesus. So, because if you're dealing with Peter, somebody who only knew Jesus as, a, say, a teacher, and really if you look at Peter, there's so much projection on Peter's part. Peter's desire to see Jesus as a prophecy, prophesied Jewish teacher. Um, Peter's fear of Jesus' closest with Mary Magdalene. I mean, you know, Peter clearly had leadership skills, but at the same time, Peter had serious neurosis on his hands. Right. And, now, now wasn't Pe weren't Peter and Andrew, weren't they a part of John the Baptist's, weren't they students of his? I know at least Andrew was, and, and I think that's how they first came across Jesus was, is um, he was with John and they saw Jesus and Andrew approached Jesus at that point. And I believe Andrew and Peter are brothers. Well, it's also possible that the timeline is skewed there as well. Sure. You know, it's a lot of what the early church did was attempt, was build stories to try and uh, create legitimacy. I, I, I'm not so sure I believe that account. I mean, it's possible, it's, it's not improbable, but it certainly would make Peter seem even more, seem that Peter's accounts had even more veracity if he had been part of John's group. So I call right. that into question, just like I call the majority of the Book of Acts into question, you know, just like I call a lot of things um, in the New Testament into question for that reason, because we're dealing with a group that was like operating in a really cutthroat way to try and build a sense of legitimacy, because we know 
that the picture of early Christianity was not of a monolithic, um, you know, orthodox movement, but rather a, a group, many small heterodox groups operating in their own manner. And, you know, different groups having different books, having different approaches, some being very, very, very Judaizing, some being completely, you know, very Hellenistic and, you know, and others being having a very strong Egyptian influence. And you can see that Egyptian influence to this day in the Coptic church. Oh yeah. Right. And I think it's interesting that the, the apostles, some of the first converts and some of the first followers of, of this new, uh, really new kind of Judaic sect, which we call Christianity. Some of those first members were Samaritans. So the apostles immediately went to Samaria. And my guess is that they, they already, the Samaritans were, were more open to this message than the more Jewish, well, than the Jews. Um, they weren't getting a very great response from the Jews. And it's interesting that they go to Samaria almost right off the bat, right after Jesus is gone. It, it's funny given that you even see the Samarian, I mean, Samaritan, the anti-Samaritan bias in the New Testament. You know, there's irony there. Right. Yeah, you do see uh, in the Gospel of Luke, or I think it's Matthew, actually, that, you know, Jesus is like saying, you know, oh, this, you know those Samaritan dogs. <laughs> uh, but, you know, later, in, but in John, though, he isn't as uh, condemning of uh, the Samaritans, you know, which, in my opinion, uh, it seems to me that uh, whoever the writer was of the Gospel of John was very familiar with the uh, Simonian or Johannite tradition. Uh, so moving moving along with with Simon's story, so we have their initial meeting, which is the the popular uh, everyone's popular kind of view of Simon, where where the I, I believe it was Philip uh, was performing miracles in Samaria. Simon was part of this group that was baptized. He humbly asked to be involved. I mean, he was very humble throughout their interaction, which is interesting that they didn't make him seem like more of an ass or a jerk. But um, even when they rebuked him after he offered compensation, essentially for, for their, their teaching um, and they treated him like, like garbage, he was very humble about it and asked for their forgiveness, which, which is interesting. So we have, we have that interaction, which do you guys want to touch on that at all before we move along the timeline? Well, yeah, I hate, I hate to seem repetitive here, but I'm not so sure. I've always called into question the idea that Simon came to them for initiation when Simon was already initiated. Why would Simon need to do that, especially if Simon was already familiar with Jesus and originally part of the same group that Jesus was part of? Why would Simon then go to Jesus's students? So why would he go to the peers why would they go? Why would he go to the students of his peer and seek initiation from them? I I call that into question. I call bullshit on that. On the other hand, there may have been some kind of interaction, and you know we know that at least according to you know one source, Simon was also called Faustus, you know, which is blessed or beloved, um, and that's because he was actually loved by his disciples. Um, you know, and and he was loved because he not only was he charismatic, but
But if you look at the, the personality traits you described in that interaction, here we have somebody that was respectful, that was humble, and still did not, did not react with the tooth for a tooth. You know, Simon acted more like Jesus than the apostles did in that situation. Right, right. I wonder if I always wonder if the apostles were trying to s- summon their inner Jesus from from the you know the Jesus that was in the the temple of the with the money changers. Like if they were trying to to make that kind of point, like hey, we Jesus is gone, but you know we're still carrying this this same kind of ideology along. Yeah, you could definitely make the argument that the uh, the apostles or even the church fathers are. Uh, sort of in the same strain of the uh, Pharisees that Jesus rebukes, you know, and even John rebukes as well. And, you know, going back to uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, you know, you see, you know, of course, you do see Simon uh, trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter, demanding him that he should repent. And uh, that, you know, then you see Simon sulking away, that uh, begging Peter to pray for him that the Lord not, you know, punish him or uh, send him to hell. but but, you know, Simon, uh, in a way, he actually does repent you know, because, but h- however, I do think that story, though, in Acts is really an early polemical attack on the uh, Simonian anointing practice of passing on the Christ or the Spirit or the Holy Spirit to the, uh, to the initiated through baptism. Uh, while Peter and Philip, uh, that actually represents the, uh, the apostolic church, appropriates that same practice into their own while uh, proclaiming the uh, the gospel you know so i kind of feel like uh that originally came from john's sect and was appropriated in, in all the, in all these other religious groups so that's, that's my- a really great point that's a really great point and i think that something i want to say before i forget i think that we can account for the animosity of the mandaeans toward jesus i personally think that this actually comes from that earlier conflict that happened right after John died. I think the Mandaeans are are the surviving remnant of followers of John who refused to go with Jesus. They could have been an outgrowth of the followers of Decithius or Simon. Not likely Simon, because the Mandaeans are more Semitic than what Simon seemed to have taught. But... I think that their their animosity toward Jesus literally originates in that earlier controversy that happened after John died. Putting that aside for a minute, I want to go back to what Alex was saying. Besides that, I also, I just think, I mean, how could anyone take these accounts seriously? Simon, okay, number one, Simon was known. He was famous, basically, among these types of people. Simon was a religious teacher. He was known as like a guru, just like Jesus, okay? That's why you have Jesus Christ. That's not his name. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one, as we know. And also mm-hmm. there's Christos, as late uh, Richard Duke de Palatine has pointed out. You know, Christos means the good. Mm-hmm. So Jesus went by a title. Well, Simon also went by a title of Magus or Faustus. So both of them, these are not likely that their actual names were Magus and Christus, mm-hmm. you know, or Crestus, depending on, you know, some, you know, whether you want to, 
But the thing is, they both went by these titles because they were essentially gurus or religious leaders. So for the for Simon to approach the apostles and for them to just act like, oh, who's this guy? They knew exact if he did approach the apostles, they would have known exactly who he was. He was they would have been very familiar with him. And it's absolutely incredulous that he would have been begging Peter to oh pray for me, Peter. Pray for me. You know, give me a fucking break. Well, I'm so, still I'm still I'm still surprised that they even put him in such a good light. I mean, the fact that he was humble, they could have yeah, could have really drug him through the coals in that in that way as well, which makes me think that maybe there was something that happened. I don't know, it's hard to say. Um but, but it wouldn't be believable. But like if like you said it seemed excessive. Right, like you said, he was very Jesus like in his response, unlike how the apostles were acting. Right. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you know, the the this whole story relies on the passive acceptance um passive acceptance of authoritarian, you know, uh teaching uh by by, you know, true quote unquote true believers. Anybody with a critical eye looks at this, can look at this and go, yeah, this is just propaganda. This is just slander. Right. Simon was a popular religious teacher who was seen as competition for the emerging cults centered around Jesus, especially because he was probably accepted as, as an important teacher by some of the more Gnosticizing Christian groups. Because some of the early apostles, they led different groups. You know, but we have Peter has if you look at some of the other gospels and you consider that at least part of what's in them maybe maybe historical, Peter has a reputation for having issues with anybody who presented authority outside of Jesus or himself. I mean, right. look at look at the way he reacts to Jesus, Jesus' interactions with Mary Magdalene. Yeah. You know, he's very threatened by that. You know, and, and why? Because Peter, at least according to traditional sources, was was a Jew. He was a rabbi. And so he was part of a very, you know, misogynistic, authoritarian, uh, anti-magical uh, group. I mean, to me, it's actually astonishing that Peter even followed Jesus, but it's probably because he saw Jesus do some tremendous things. That said, you can't, you couldn't make Peter be somebody other than what who he was, and I, I don't trust any of these accounts. I mean, if if I if if Christianity had never become what it what, what it became, and I was just somebody passively reading this as an interesting interesting historical documents, I would I would be reading these accounts of Simon and going, this is total bullshit. <laughs> this is these people are trying to make this guy look bad because obviously they saw him as a threat. Well, I, mean, I think it's that's almost yep. like a parody. Yeah, I mean that's a great point. They could not; they had to put the smackdown on Simon. They had to publicly humiliate him, whether that really happened or not. They had to make it a point to put him in his place and assert their dominance over him, because he had his own ideas of things. So even if he was baptized as a Christian, he wasn't going to fall in line, and they knew it. Um, he had a, his own following, so they really had to bring out all the guns, I think, and, and show that he was he was the the lesser the lesser dog. We were talking about your alpha dog. Um, this is this is like a, the story with with Simon is just a perpetual pissing contest, a perpetual uh, you know alpha. Who's who's the alpha here? 
And they definitely saw Simon as a threat because he was such a charismatic leader of these Samaritans who just so happened to be the early Christian converts. So I think it was imperative for them to put him in place, if not outright murder him, which is a possibility in my mind. Oh, yeah. You see that uh, entered in uh, the acts of Peter and Paul. <laughs> he, uh, you know, when Simon is flying around with his magical uh, abilities, you know, Peter prays to God that he falls flat on his face and then he breaks his legs. Now, that doesn't seem like something Jesus would do uh, in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't really see uh, Jesus uh, pronouncing curses too many times. Well, it on that fig tree, which was kind of odd, but. Uh, that's besides the point <laughs> but uh you know when you look at you know the gospel accounts uh, when, when then uh, when you see these accusations leveled against simon magus what's also interesting to me is that when you read uh texts like the apology of socrates uh socrates is actually accused by Miletus of being a corrupter of the youth and teaching men to follow the demigods rather than the Olympians. So, and then the same thing happens in the Clementine homilies where Simon is actually depicted as a corrupter of, uh, I think it's Justa, I think. I think there's Aquila and, and Nicetus. I think they're like the sons of Justa. But uh, he he's accused of corrupting them. And then, and then Simon, like Jesus, or sorry, Jesus, like Simon, I should say, is actually accused by the uh, Pharisees of being the uh, Samaritan too. And he's actually also possessed by a, a demon, right? Yeah, or, or a demon. Yeah, and yeah. Then you know, then you look at Socrates. He, uh, well, what, what did he talk about being a philosopher? You know, that you know, if you're a philosopher, you also have like a uh, not a really a demon, but a demonion, right? Or a genius. A demon is just a spirit. It's a guiding spirit. It's it's meant to really be uh, akin to. The genius or the higher self or the holy guardian angel, you know, that we that could be a whole rabbit hole we went into about the corruption of the term daimon into the modern term demon, but and how that connects into the demonization of sexuality in the early church and how that relates to the suppression of women and how that relates to the suppression of Simon. But that would be a rabbit hole that we could go down for hours that we shouldn't do in this particular conversation at this time. However, you know, Peter, again, to return to Peter and his myriad issues, you know, <laughs> like, because you, you, I, I encourage anyone listening not to take the church, early church fathers very seriously, you know, in terms of these things. You know, there may be other areas where they were strong, but when it comes to this, it's all polemic, it's all propaganda, it's all slander, it's all attack. It's not true. It's lies. Now, within those lies... We can find some valuable accounts, some valuable accounts of teachings and things. Um, and I think the fact is, as we all know, an effective liar mixes the truth with the illusion. And so that's why we can find things that are pl plausibly true, like the, 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 you know, the description of the great announcement by Simon and his teachings on the rivers in Eden and things like that, and the aeons. I mean, those are consistent. Those seem to be the consistent thought of a particular person, so we can say those things are probably accurate. When we hear about the nonsense that Simon was accused of, we can probably say, just let's throw that out because it's nonsense and it's BS. Now, 
Peter, again, had issues with women. He didn't like women being in a position of authority, which to me makes him a, gar makes him a garbage person. Um, um, you know, so what do we see with Simon? He was traveling around with the female teacher. He was traveling around with the woman who was performing mysteries with him. That's a big issue for Peter. That's why Peter slandered Mary Magdalene. That's why Peter's that's that's why Peter had huge issues in like in one of the Gnostic Gospels. And I believe, as some scholars also have suggested, that this is reflective of something that may have happened, probably more than once, where Peter confronts Jesus and says, Why do you treat Mary Magdalene like that? You know, why are you so close with her? Why do you kiss her? And Jesus is basically like, dude, if you don't get it, I can't explain it to you. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a big part of the early church's issue with Simon, too, is the fact that it seems like women did not play a subservient role in Simon's group. Right. Which is a characteristic of the early Gnostic groups in general, with the emphasis on Sophia, on female priests and bishops, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, I want to mention a couple points here. Um, so you know how you mentioned the daemonion. Uh, so, well, I guess we can take uh, Irenaeus's uh, testimony with a grain of salt, but uh, he did accuse uh, you know Simon Magus and his followers of uh, being engaged in like you know magical incantations or transmitting love spells, charms, dreams by the aid of like uh, demons. I, now, Irenaeus he calls them like uh, I'm trying to pronounce it. Uh, power, Paradragery or some, ah, something like that. Then he knows like another, I don't know, these, these are like dream senders. But, you know, it's also interesting though, but uh, in that we read the Acts of Nicodemus, or I'm sorry, the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Acts of Pilate. Uh, Jesus also uh, sends a spirit or dream sender to uh, Pilate's wife. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm. That's interesting. So I'm like, okay, huh. so I think they're they're involved in a similar uh, uh, practices. <laughs> so well, in this book, Jesus Magician goes into a lot of the evidence from Jesus being a magician of that time. I mean, Jesus really fits the characteristics of an itinerant magus uh, during that period. Uh, I yeah. I think it's worthy to note that as much as Christians would hate to hear this, that Jesus wasn't such a unique character. I mean, he certainly was in a sense, but around this time, it seems as though gurus were kind of a dime a dozen. I mean, uh, he was at the top of the of his game, that's for sure. But um, it it wasn't unheard of, even in this very you know time, for there have been multiple gurus kind of traveling around, like uh, Simon. And is it Apollonius around this, this same time they were contemporary? Apollonius, yeah. Apollonius. So, yeah, I mean, Jesus wasn't anything spectacular in the sense that it was this kind of new thing. Well, you know what's interesting is that, you know, Simon is also called the standing one, right? And uh, which means, you know, he has... Standing one means that you, you have eternal power, authority, or divinity, kind of like a, a high priest, right? Kind of like Melchizedek. He's also considered a standing one. So he's also now magus is a Greek word for great. And uh, sort of that, and so magus is used as sort of like a pun for the, uh, for the title of magos or magician. 
And and also, if you read uh, uh, Irenaeus' uh, testimony, he actually says that, well, I mean, again, we have to take this with a grain of salt, uh, but uh, he, uh, he Irene, according to Irenaeus, that Simon uh, claimed that uh, Jesus was actually an incarnation of him. <laughs> and uh, he actually, he, he seemed to suffer, but he didn't really suffer, which is like, you know, the doctrine of uh, docetism, but. Well, we see that in the Acts of John, too, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's get into that. Like, What's your opinion on that, uh, Janice? Well, I want to actually talk about what you just said about how, according to the, you know, Irenaeus, and I don't even want to get into his credibility, which is, like, sewer level. But, <laughs> like, honestly, like, and I don't want to make it seem like I dislike all the, I love Clement. I love Synesius of Ptolemies. Origin is very very cool at times and yeah i mean there were wonderful church fathers but the ones writing this stuff about simon were garbage people mm-hmm. now you know like because honestly like to slander a great spiritual teacher to slander for the listener what if it was somebody who was writing these things about jesus mm-hmm. you know what i mean think like about the mandaeans yeah read, right. read, read the mandaean words and see how you feel or the Babylonian well, I mean, Jews. Yeah, just read the Talmud. He, they, they totally trust Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So, like, think about it that way. Regardless of if there's a disagreement, to spread lies is wrong. To say we disagree, it's not our way, we don't see, that's one thing. But it's dishonorable to spread, you know, slanderous deceptions over a great religious teacher. And that's what Simon Magus was. Now, um, I want to touch on, so again, this is kind of like the Simon saying he's Zeus thing. So for Simon to say, well, I was Jesus here, uh, you know, provided, say, let's say this is true, because it's possible it was true. Because Simon did seem charismatic, and he did seem to say some things that people, you know, were like, whoa, what? But Jesus did that too. Again, another similarity between them. If Simon identified with the same Godhead that Jesus identified with, then Simon saying, I was previous, I was Jesus in this place. I was the Holy Spirit in another place. He is not saying that Simon, the personality was Jesus, the personality. What he was saying in mystery language was that Jesus and Simon identified with the same Godhead. And so Mm -hmm. were expressions of that same being. Uh Right. And that Jesus may be, uh, watering it down maybe is where the inconsistency that Simon sees comes from. Because it seems like Jesus was was uh, looking for a, a broader audience. I think that's possible, yeah. And I've recently, well, I was recently reading an apocryphal fragment, um, and I'll have to look up where it came from. I'm, I can't remember right now that clearly, but... It actually speaks of the household of Martha, and it talks about Simon being in the household of Martha, who was his mother. And as we know, Martha had a very close relationship with Jesus. So this could just be a co- apocryphal speculation, of course, but if, if this fragment was saying that Martha was Simon's mother, the same Martha that's in the Gospels as being so closely related to Jesus— that would make Jesus and Simon very, very closely related to each other and very aware of each other. 
Right. So I can I can imagine Simon, John, and Jesus all kind of growing up at least parallel or or you know being associated with each other quite a bit. Right. Especially if John was older, maybe a mentor figure or an instructor who perhaps taught the boys growing up. You know, um, another thing I want to call into the conversation, uh, you know, because I have to go here in a minute. Uh, another thing I want to call into the conversation, it, it's a series of writings that is often passed over. It's considered to be spurious or, you know, fabrication. But in this, it's, it's actually, they're actually Druidic writings or writings about the Druids. There are these um, stories of a Druid named Mog Ruth or Mog Ruth. And Mog Ruth was said to be taught by Simon Magus. In these stories, there's accounts of Simon being in Scotland or Ireland, is Scotland, right? And teaching this Druid magic. In these stories, Simon actually has two sons. And what's interesting to me and which, what leads, lends them credence is the, is the strange details that Simon's two sons were actually uh, accused of raping this, fe- this f- uh, female, this priestess. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, this, this, this druid priestess, and that there was actually a controversy among those people there. Now, this is very interesting to me because we have the accounts of John, going to Iona. Um, And we have in those parts, prior to the arrival of the Roman church, the church of the Chaldees. And the church of the Chaldees was composed of Druids who willingly adopted Christianity and saw it as an inheritance of their, their, uh, I'm sorry, a continuance of their tradition in a new form. These druids then became bishops and priests, and are work and have been. It's been suggested that the incredible literary and artistic traditions that produced, like the Book of Kells, for instance, were actually passed down from the Chaldee Church, uh, who were the continuance of the druids. So we see a very possible Gnostic connection because it's known that after Jesus left. After he after he left this world, the apostles scattered. You know, Thomas went to India. Um, it said that John and perhaps Mary went to Scotland. You know, and so on and so forth. You know, the different apostles went to different places. I think was it did Mark go to uh, Ethiopia? Is that right? I believe um, that uh, somebody went to Ethiopia. Yeah, I think it was Mark. So it wouldn't be absurd if John was in Scotland. And if Simon was actually closer with this group of people than the church fathers wanted us to believe, that Simon would have ended up there, especially if they were in flight from a newly emerging and oppressive uh, Catholic regime that was seeking to stamp out dissenters and those who possessed an alternate historical narrative. And then, so I'm saying it's very plausible that Simon actually did end up in Scotland. And if that were the case, he would have been interacting with Druids. And if Simon, it's also certainly possible, if you consider that Simon may have been married to Helen, that they had children. And if that's the case, by the time, say if Simon, when Simon and Jesus, if Simon was preaching at a certain point with Helen, by the time that he had ended up in Scotland long after Jesus' death, he may have had two young adult sons. 
So it's a very interesting series of stories. Like I've said, it's been considered to be spurious. It's not been taken seriously. Personally, I think there is evidence in those stories of um, events that have occurred. I, it's, it's something worth researching and looking into for anyone who's interested. That's very interesting. And Janice, I think you, you may have found your, your, uh, your jackpot, your gold mine. This could be the next Holy Blood, Holy Grail book. <laughs> oh, finally be rich. <laughs> so speaking of the end of Simon, where, where does Simon end up? And also speaking about the nonsense of the church fathers, I think it's interesting for us to just run through all the ways Simon has died. And I want to kind of parallel that with the other most demonic uh, character in, in Christianity is Judas. They died about equal number of times in different, different, different ways, completely different ways. So with Simon, um, let's see, Cyril of Jerusalem has him uh, careening through the air in a chariot drawn by demons. Peter and Paul prayed him to death, basically. Uh, he falls to earth, a mangled corpse. The Acts of Peter and Paul, again, Simon is levitating from a wooden tower. Uh, they pray him down, and he crashes to the, to the ground and is divided into four parts, whatever that means. So that's some, some – <laughs> there's something going on there that doesn't really make sense. The Acts of Peter, he levitates up. Peter prays. He falls and breaks his leg in three parts. Okay, so again, we've got these partings of, of how he's becoming broken. And then the crowd turns on Simon in this account, where at one point they were all for him, and now that he's been bested, they turn on him and, and attempt to stone him to death, which is just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you know, it makes no sense, but of course it shows that, you know, everyone saw through his illusion at this point. And also in this account, he's gravely injured but not killed. So he's drug away to a, a different town, and he's in someone's house, and he dies while being uh, while in surgery, essentially. Okay, and then the other account that I found was where he is said to continue his teachings under a, a plain tree, and. Eventually, he tries a like a, a David Blaine type uh, trick where he has his followers bury him alive, and he is going to rise three days just like Jesus, and they say he is still in that same spot today. So either that has a grain of the truth and it backfired, or it's just another ridiculous um, way to, to slander him. And then quickly, I want to run through Judas. Judas, in Matthew, uh, <laughs> he commits suicide by hanging himself. So that's the most common uh, way that people know about Judas. Uh, in Acts, he used the money to buy a field, but then he falls headfirst off of a cliff and bursts into pieces <laughs> with his bowels gushing out, which doesn't, isn't typically what happens when you fall off a cliff. <laughs> But it kind of reminds me of, of Simon falling and breaking into four pieces. Like what, you know, neither make much sense. Um, so con continuing with Judas, then we have um, the church father Papias, Papias, who is 
I guess he was a contemporary of John. This is a very different, extremely different uh, narrative where Judas survives and he lives out his life in disease and despair and he's bloated and eventually he's crushed by a cart and I believe his bowels burst out of him in that account as well. So there's, there's a theme there. Um, the Gospel of Barnabas, which is very later, Jesus and Judas switch places, so it's Judas who's, who's actually crucified. And then the Gospel of Judas. Judas has a vision of the disciples stoning him and persecuting him, which definitely happened, uh, at least in the, literal, in the literary sense. Yeah, well, there's a there's an account with Simon that is similar to the plane tree one, but and I I can't remember right now where this is from, but that he dies peacefully under the plane tree, surrounded by his apostles, by by his by his uh, disciples, who and I believe that may be the same account where it's described. I may be conflating, but it may be the same. A person who describes how he was called Faustus, um, but um, there is one account of Simon where he dies peacefully under that tree, surrounded by those who love him. So, and it's also significant the Faustus thing. I want to jump over to that real quick because there is, I think, Monic Augustine wrote something against Faustus the Manichaean. You know, and it's just funny because then in that account now we have Faustus, which you know the only person during that period who was really called Faustus was Simon being called a Manichaean. And I actually think that's significant because the Manichaeans traced a sense of at least theological descent, if not initiatory descent from Zoroaster, whose priests were Magi. So and Simon being a Magus and his, um, his philosophy being essentially the fire philosophy that's why it's been suggested that Simon's Simon's theology had something had had a lot uh, was inspired greatly by Stoicism because of his Heraclitian uh, focus on fire, which actually is very Zoroastrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to the death thing, I mean, Dominic, you did such a good job there, just illustrating the absurdity of these narratives. And it almost, it, you know, what the word that comes, that arises in my awareness when I read these things are desperation. You know, these these writers are desperate. Oh, they to, were just, they were falling all over themselves trying to see who could make the worst death, you know, and discredit these individuals. And you have to ask, who benefits? Who benefits from the discrediting? Who benefits from the slander and why? Why do you slander? Do you slander somebody who you don't consider a threat? Do you slander somebody who you assume will be forgotten? No. You slander somebody who you think is a threat. You slander somebody who is already known. You try to wipe out the memory by creating noise. You try and erase the other accounts by, by propagating as many accounts as possible of your version of the story. It's just classic propaganda. It's used by governments to this day. So speaking of Faustus, uh, I seem to recall, wasn't there a Faustus in um, the Clementine homilies? Uh, I want to say that Simon switched places with him. Is this, am I remembering this incorrectly? Alex, do you remember? 
Yeah, that my memory is sort of vague on that one. But yeah, I do remember there was a Faustus in uh, that text. But you know, what's interesting about uh, Simon uh, in the cleansing homilies, he's actually accused of creating a, a homunculus. <laughs> uh, I think he like takes like the spirit of a of a dead uh, child and somehow makes him his like his slave or something. So I, I think they, I think they actually say he murdered the, the boy as well. That oh, was, that's right. It was like some course. sort of, like, some sort of like satanic, like, you know, sacrifice or something. Well, that just goes along. I mean, of course he has to be a child murderer too. Right. But actually the, the, now what may be true, however, is that he performed some type of operation using the spirit of the dead. Because if you examine the Greek magical papyri, you will see operations to conjure the spirit of a dead criminal, um, of somebody who died of drowning. And I think in some cases, a dead child, people who were considered, people who died in a certain way were considered to be earthbound and were frequently conjured by magicians of that period. So there may be some truth in that, or that may have been the inspiration for that story. Oh, now I remember who Faustus was. Okay. Yeah, so Faustus was uh, the father of Clement, actually. <laughs> so he, there was, uh, it was uh, Faustus, and then there was Faustinus. So I think there was like, or Faust, Faustina, yeah, something, something like a Faustinianus or something. I think I'm not. I think I'm mangling it, but they're like two elder brothers, and I think Faust, Faustus was uh, the brother of Clement, which is kind of an interesting twist right there. <laughs> uh, but you know what's interesting? Also interesting is that uh, when you read uh, Matthew, you know how uh, you know Jesus says that that he will be he actually tells Simon or Jonah that he'll be renamed Peter, right? Now, Barjona is uh, Aramaic for this, that means son of John, okay? Now, uh, and of course, you know, Simon Magus is, the, is his disciple of John. So, so I'm just thinking, I was just thinking to myself, well, could the fact that the church that Simon Barjona was given to establish on a rock or Cephas by Jesus was just a veiled illusion that Simon Magus was actually renamed Peter? <laughs> So I don't know. It's just kind of like a kind of a weird, my own little pet theory there. But I mean, I don't know if I, that's really true. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, um, GRS Mead, drawing on an earlier scholarship, did a very good job explaining how the stories of the contest between Peter and Simon and Acts were actually based upon the controversy. Uh, upon an earlier controversy between uh, Peter and Paul, which was related to the conflict between the two early sects of the Ebionites, Ebionites and Alkacites. So the issue with that is that it's fairly, it's fairly provable that um, the Acts narrative, at least, is based on a Peter-Paul conflict, and that the story, then the name later was switched to... Paul, Paul was switched out for Simon when Paul ended up in the good graces of the church. So we can't have both. We can't have Peter be Simon and Paul be Simon. I think the case, and again, I'm kind of. I and think Simon it's really, be Jesus. 
Right, right. And I, I, you know, I'm really against this type of theorizing because I think it takes us away from who Simon was. But anyway, like, I, I think that if Simon was someone, I think Paul fits more closely. Paul right. was from Tarsus in Cilicia. Tarsus was a major center of Mithraic worship. Paul's experience of Jesus was as a bright light. The Zoroastrian mysteries, which uh, Mithraism was a continuation of, worship the god of light, Ahura Mazda. So from a Mazdan or Zoroastrian perspective, Jesus would have been a manifestation of Ahura Mazda. So it would have made sense for a Mithraic initiate to experience Jesus as the bright shining light, or alternately to call that bright shining light, which a Zoroastrian would call Mazda, Jesus. So in my opinion, if we were going to go down that right route, I personally find Paul to be far, far more plausible than Peter. That makes sense. And I, I would tend to, I, I tend to not go down the, those rabbit holes because the, the water just gets so muddy, but they're very interesting to, to kind of think about as, as kind of thought experiments. I think it's definitely possible that, well, in my personal opinion, these were all individual people that actually exist, existed, that it's, it's likely that, I mean, we, we definitely know that the church fathers were screwing around with all sorts of documents and changing things. It's, it's likely that, that people, what people did and said were attributed to other people. I think yes. that's pretty plausible. Also consider that Paul was considered to be a threat to the early church because he had massive, a large following. Paul's theology was actually very much, very much about breaking free from Judaism too. You know, yeah. Paul's, Paul's theology is all about the liberation through, through the word, liberation through Christ from the law. Um, this is far closer to Simon's teachings, what Peter seems to have taught. Um, you know, so again, I think, and again, you know, so perhaps it's, it is possible if you follow the line of thought with Paul, Paul's movement became so large that the early church couldn't defeat it. So they assimilated it. And if that was actually Simon's movement, then they, you know, perhaps part of the assimilation was to rename Simon as Paul. You know what I'm saying? As part of the integration of the, of the, D, of the, of the divergent movement, because the theologies really are, they're really irreconcilable. You cannot, and Jesus's behavior in, in the New Testament is also, it's, it's not Jewish. It's not Jewish. It, it, he, Jesus, he breaks, the, he breaks from all of these Judaic customs. And I think that after Jewish Jesus passed, his Jewish disciples, there was a movement among some of them to try and turn Christianity into basically Jews for Jesus. Right. I mean, he, he was a, a Jewish reformer. I, 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 that's what I, I would say that he was more of a reformer going, you know, wanting to go back to the first temple with the, you know, this female uh, presence and, and that kind of thing. But yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Paul is kind of like a, a, a more of a title really. I mean, I think Herman Deterrent, he's like a, one of these Dutch radicals that, really do think that uh paul and even his writings were like fakes <laughs> concocted by a church uh I, I don't think that's necessarily the truth but i mean i do think that that might be correct in saying that that paul was a title that means essentially means small or the little ones you know i think the bible does talk about the little ones or the small ones 
And, you know, Simon is also called great, you know. And even Philippians, you know, it talks about how Jesus, you know, he was, he was like the great power that became a servant, right? He's like the, the eternal one that became uh, small for the sake of mankind. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say that Paul didn't exist, but I would, I would say, um, you know, we know at this point that the things that are into that are in the letters of Paul about, say, women needing to be subservient, for instance, those have been proven to be interpolations um, that they were that whoever Paul was, those things were not actually written by him, and it's clear because the if you look at the Greek. Of, of Paul's letters, it is filled with Gnostic terminology. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and Elaine Pagels touches on this in her, in her book on the subject from years ago. But, you know, then there's this legalistic authoritarian strain in there, and it can be isolated by scholars as being from a different, different authors. And this is not dissimilar to the sort of Yahwist interpolations in the Genesis narratives, you know, because you have the Elohistic, uh, probably Canaanite or Samaritan uh, narrative in Genesis, and then you have the uh, Yahwistic, you know, authoritarian, there's no God but me type stuff. And the reason I'm even bringing up Genesis, besides the fact that we see, again, these this group of Jewish priests seeking to, you know, turn things in a certain direction, but also Simon spoke on Genesis, and he was cons- he was it was a point of focus for him. Oh yeah, like well, if you look, read uh, Hippolytus, uh, he goes on this laborious sort of detail trying to explain what Simon was teaching. That, you know how Genesis is just uh, uh, an allegory of the human body, or the physiology of the human body. So, I mean, we can go on for hours on Hippolytus. It's like that that guy, he's he's nuts. <laughs> well, in a good way, but I mean, he—I suspect he's sort of a secret uh, Gnostic, but that's kind of going off tangent there. But yeah, uh, go, but going back, possible because of the way he preserved so much. I think it's sort of like Clement. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I just think that there was a a small but a small contingent. Clement essentially says as much that there was a small contingent within the early church that was trying to preserve the Gnosis in the upper echelons of it in a secretive way. And I'm certain Clement was part of it. And I've often wondered if Hippolytus was also part of that too, because he goes to nearly absurd lengths to document and record a lot of Gnostic teaching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Just reading Hippolytus, you know, the reputation of all heresies, uh, it just—it's uh, unbelievable how detailed he goes. He uh, goes into all these multiple heresies. So, and he's also—he's also very like you know limp-wristed in his attacks against Gnostic. He's like you know, oh, they're—they're—they're they're, they're so silly. You know, he's silly Gnostics. They don't know anything. But I'll just talk about—I'll just waste like all my my entire lifespan just talking about. That. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty—it's pretty hilarious. And he was also an anti-pope too. And he was also martyred, by the way. So it kind of gets me to think, hmm, well, Hippolytus, he sounds like more like a Gnostic sympathizer than he is a uh, strident church father. <laughs> and I think you have something there. You know, it's very different with Justin Martyr or Irenaeus or even Augustine. And Augustine actually had some valuable things to say. As well, a, He was a Manichaean, right? Yeah, originally he was, a, he was a Manichaean. And I believe the strength of Augustine's theology actually rests 
upon his earlier Manichaean training. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, I don't want to go too uh, in depth into the uh, uh, geology and the uh, emanation cosmology of the uh, great announcement or the great declaration. Uh, we may have to do it on a separate podcast, but it is. I think that's noting. the plan. Yeah. So, so good segue there. Good way to do that, Alex. Nice. You're a pro. Um, <laughs> is yeah, we got to run. This is we can go on for hours. I think. I mean, this is an awesome topic. But but like I said, we have, we've got to. Some of us has to have to go. So let's continue this in part two. We'll we'll try to get together soon, um, and focus more in part two with the uh, theology and the uh, more spiritual views and the cosmologies of of Simon and Simonism. I think that it's clear to anyone listening that you know none of us are really on board with the um, with the um, what's it called the myth the mythicist the mythicist attitude that's a stumbling block it's you know we have acharya s we have robert what's his face and you know these people they had significant contributions to scholarship in some regards but mythicism essentially is a materialistic reductionism which is a disservice to the spirit of the teaching uh that's my public service announcement understand that these things are genuine they're real uh, and that there is not a universal equivocation. Everything is not everything. Zeus is not Helios. Simon is not Lao Tzu. Um, you know, and, that, and, uh, and, and Simon equals Lao Tzu is not mirrored in the constellation Cepheus, uh, you know, in the sky, which is actually, you know, it's not true. And, you know. Please tell me that's not a real theory. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, some of these mythicists seem to actually believe these nonsense ideas and what they do is they actually confuse people and turn their minds away from accessing the deeper core of these mysteries i think that's an interesting point and like you said at the beginning you know you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater water either um people like robert price are brilliant in what they do but yeah i i would tend to agree that they it muddies the waters a little bit, but it depends, you know, too, on what you're you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, if you're just looking for intellectual masturbation, then feel free to explore those ideas for the rest of your life and accomplish nothing with them. But if you're looking to experience gnosis, which is still accessible to people in the present day, then you need to understand that there are spiritual mysteries at the core of these things. And if you're able to use a discerning intellect, you can separate out the wheat from the chaff. Very cool. Thanks, Janice. Ending on a controversial note. Alex, any yeah. final words for this episode? Uh, I just want to say I really enjoyed talking about Simon with you guys. Uh, I haven't really talked uh, this in depth with anybody on this topic. So, yeah, I really want to thank you for uh, reaching me out to uh, talk about uh, Simon. And I really hope part two is just as good. Uh, yeah, it's part two is going to, I think, will might blow everyone's minds. <laughs> Nice. Right. Your contributions high. were invaluable too. I mean, you you know, you really brought up some thought-provoking ideas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Alex, we wouldn't have some of those things you brought up. We wouldn't have. Um, so we're we're coming from different angles, which is cool. Which is, I think this was a success. Oh yeah, and also I wanted to get into uh, Helen more in, in greater detail in part two for sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and in part two, we can do a comparison in contrast of Helen and Magdalene. That would be cool.
Yeah, and and the whole Holy Grail thing is also interesting. Interesting because I thought about that too as well, um, uh, Janice. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty nuts. I have a whole theory on it. I haven't actually uh, actually written a post or a or a book about it, but I have my theories on the on how Simon actually connects to the Holy Grail. <laughs> and everybody, tune in to the next episode if you want to hear some of those theories right here, right now. <laughs> not not, not right now. Not right now, but uh, Alex, what's what's your website? Oh, theaeoni.com. T h e a e o n a. Sorry, e y e dot com. <laughs> so go there if you want to look at more of my uh, theories and posts. And but uh, you know, I am planning on uh, launching sort of a a school or an online school, but a premium for our premium site, but. Uh, I am working on that side. I just haven't had too much time to work on my site uh, because I've been writing a book and working and life in general has been taking all my uh, energy, but I eventually want to go back to my site and really hammer it out. <laughs> cool. No, that's awesome. Now, you know, we've got, we've got about 30 listeners, so this might push you over the edge um, as far as being able to make ends meet. So, <laughs> Right. <you're welcome. laughs> oh, yeah. Why not? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Janice. Thank you, Dominic. All right. We'll do this again soon. All right. Peace out, guys. <laughs>